Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, as Brother Ed just said, I do want to make sure you're aware of the cookout we had last night, uh, the 4th of July block party, and it was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, we had lots of families, lots of young children running around, and it was, uh, I would call it organized chaos for most of the evening, but it was a great evening. Uh, I want to thank uh, our teams that helped with that, uh, all the people that cooked and prepared food, all the people that served and set up games, and everyone who was just there engaging with people, and it was a beautiful evening. We had about 50 people there overall, and it was just a fun night, and so uh, if you would, could we give a short round of applause for those that served last night and just simply say thank you. Now, I do want to make another brief announcement just so that you guys are aware of it. You've probably got the email from Pastor Brian this week, but as you perhaps are aware, uh, Brian has been having some severe migraines this week and uh, to the point of having to go to ER and, and he's gone see a neurologist and has some medication to treat everything right now. But uh, per doctor or doctor's orders and primarily his wife's orders, uh, we have allowed him to rest this weekend. And so he'll be back with us next week. He'll be back in office this week, actually. So uh, please let him know that you are praying for him and thinking of him. But I wanted you to be aware that he's not just skipping out and enjoying his fourth. He's actually at home resting right now. So today we're going to begin our book study in the book of Acts. Uh, we are going to begin this series, uh, Faith on Fire. And so as we begin this, uh, we're going to go through the book of Acts uh, really over the next year or so with some breaks in between. But our first mini-series within this is Faith on Fire. We're really looking at the first few chapters of Acts and the beginning of the church, God bringing his people together and birthing his church. And so it's going to be an exciting study, and I think it's perfect for us as we've concluded the book study of Leviticus and looking at this idea of holiness. What does it mean to be a holy people as we worship a holy God? You've probably been asking the question throughout the book of Leviticus, well, I understand I'm to be holy, but what does that mean that I'm supposed to do, right? What does it mean that if I'm a holy person, how am I to live? How am I to respond to the world? And as Pastor Brian and I wrestle with this, we realize that perhaps we don't have all the answers, but we recognize Scripture does. And we thought, what better place to go in the Scriptures than the beginning of the church in the book of Acts? If we want to see what the outcome, the result of holy people is, all you've got to do is look back 2,000 years ago to the birth of the church in the book of Acts. And so as we go through this series, I want to encourage you that our hope and our prayer is that as you look at this, you begin to wrestle with what does it mean to follow Christ faithfully? Our prayer is that just as this first mini-series is titled, that your faith would be set on fire, that you would desire to follow Christ in a passionate, emotional way, that you would desire to see him exalted and made known around the world. Now, as a part of that, I do want to take a moment and just simply note that a part of what we do to see Christ honored and exalted in our world is to give to Holmes Avenue towards our tithes and offerings. I want to encourage you as you're here, if you are exiting, please, you're welcome to give with our ushers as you exit. You can also give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. Know that we say this every week, not because we're concerned about paying the bills, because I could not care less if I get a paycheck. What I'm concerned about is seeing events like we just had this past week be put on so that every man, woman, and child could have an opportunity to have their life transformed by the gospel of Jesus. 
See, this is why we give. Not so that you can keep the lights on, not so that you can pay paychecks, but so that every man, woman, and child can have their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. Now, I didn't choose those words on accident because today as we begin to look at Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at this idea of transformation. You see, the sermon today is actually titled, Transformed for the Mission. Transformed for the Mission, as we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. As we look at this, we're going to see this idea of transformation be put on display. Now, if you're familiar with this idea of transformation, your first thought's probably going towards transformers or something, and that's not where we're going today. This idea of transformation, it really is best defined as a change, a complete and total change. Perhaps the best illustration of that is what we see with a caterpillar. As a caterpillar begins to transform into a butterfly, what does it do? It wraps itself in a cocoon, and then several weeks later, it bursts forth as a completely new creature. It has gone from a butterfly, from a caterpillar into a butterfly. That it has come forth and been completely transformed. And as we think about this idea of transformation, that change is crucial to the idea of the Christian life. That indeed, if we're to be faithful followers of Christ, we first must be transformed from sinful, lost people into holy, redeemed people made clean by the blood of the Lamb. That that transformation must occur in our lives. And I would submit to you that the reason we are transformed, the reason that God has sent His Son Jesus to die a painful, bloody death on the cross, is not merely to complete prophecy, is not merely to do something that is incredible, though those things are true. But the point of it is to transform a people for the mission of God. To transform a people so that the entire earth will be filled with redeemed people proclaiming the good news that Jesus is on the throne. And so as we look at this passage today at the beginning of Acts, my hope and prayer is that you'll see this idea of transformation being put on display. You'll see the necessity of transformation within your life. And that you'll submit yourself, you'll commit your life to seeing yourself redeemed and transformed every single day. So as we begin, our first point is transformation begins with the Word. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we'll stop right here. And again, our first point is transformation begins with the word. Now Luke begins Acts with this dedication to Theophilus. As we look back in the beginning of the book of Luke, we see that same dedication appear. And there's a lot of things we could say and speculate about Theophilus and anything like that. But the key focus here in verse 1 is actually that second half. You see, note that he says in that second half, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You see, Acts is this two-parter book. See, it begins with the book of Luke, where we begin with the story of what Jesus is doing on the earth. That it, it, the book of Luke is really about what Jesus has begun to do. Now, this book, Acts, this is about what Jesus is continuing to do. 
And I want to be very clear as we look at this book, that this book is not just about the early church. So that is what it's framed underneath. We're looking at the story of the early church. But the point of this is not that the early church is to be exalted. The point of this is that the continuing work of Jesus in this world is exalted. That we see that Jesus is still working and doing things in this world. You see, it's an important reminder for us of the realities that the things we do as a church are not about our name, but they're about the name of Jesus. That if anyone left the block party last night thinking, Holmes Avenue is an incredible church, we did something wrong. The, the point of them coming and seeing these things, experiencing these things, whether they would leave and go, what an incredible God. What a good God that he would call his people to serve this community and bless us with a meal and an evening of fun. That in no way, shape, or form are we trying to see our lives, our church, our ministries be exalted. Rather, what we want to be exalted is the name, the ministry, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we begin this, we have to recognize that the point of this book is not to celebrate the early church, but to celebrate the continuing work of Jesus. Now, as we look at these, this intro verse, we have to look at verse 1 and verse 2 together. They're one sentence, right? We have to look at them in context. And so we see here that Jesus is teaching up until the ascension. And we're going to see that in a few verses, so keep that in the back of your mind for just a moment, right? Jesus is going to teach up until he ascends. But as we look at this, in the Greek, there's actually a connection between teaching and the Holy Spirit grammatically. Just as kind of a Bible study tip, right? That means they're tied together, right? When you see them in proximity there, there's significance. We have to pay attention to it. Now, what is Jesus teaching here? What is he teaching here in verse 2 that is so important? As we look in the book of Luke, he actually tells us that Jesus is here for 40 days on earth. He's here for 40 days before he ascends. And he's got this time to teach the disciples anything and everything they need to know. Right? What would Jesus teach to his people in 40 days before he ascends into the heavens? Well, simply put, he teaches them the scriptures. He teaches them the very word of God. How do we know that? Well, Luke chapter 24 gives us all the details. That it tells us precisely what Jesus did over those 40 days to teach his people. You see, if you flip over to Luke 24 verse 44, it actually reads, Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, as we look at this and we try to understand what is Jesus doing over these 40 days, well, he's teaching his people. And what is he teaching them? He's teaching them the scriptures. You see, he first tells them as we look at these verses that the entire Bible is all about him. That everything from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus and Jesus alone. That I know that it's a Sunday school answer, but if you're trying to figure out what a passage is talking about, the first place you should run to is it's about Jesus. 
99% of the time, you're going to be right. And that 1% of the time, you're wrong, but just because the next verse is about Jesus. Right? Like this is the very core of the Christian faith, very core of what the scriptures are. He tells us that everything from the law to the prophets and the Psalms, everything is centered on the risen Savior. You see, he shows them how to understand the Bible. It's why the text says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, he explained to them that the way you understand the width and breadth of the Bible is you begin and end your study with Jesus. It's just a good Bible study tip, right? As you're studying scripture, what's this passage about? It's about Jesus. And what do I do with that? And so as we look at this, he's telling us the key to everything is to know that the Bible is about Jesus. Now, he teaches them some other things as he's explaining the scriptures to them. As we see in the following verses, he says that he's going to explain to them how to proclaim the gospel to people. He clearly says here that that you'll explain what the Bible is about, Jesus. You'll tell people the Bible is about Jesus, about the Christ who has risen from the grave. And then you'll call people to repentance so that they can find forgiveness. That he explains to his people the precise way on how you're to proclaim the gospel. And it's as simple as that. That you proclaim that there is a risen Savior from the scriptures. You proclaim that there is repentance necessary and forgiveness can be found if you repent. Isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? Isn't that the beginning of your testimony? That you were lost, you found the risen Savior, you repented and were forgiven and now you're a redeemed child of God? That that is the very heart of the Christian faith. Now, as Jesus is explaining these things, we get to verse 3. And this is where he continues to teach his disciples some other things that they need to know. You see, here he's continuing with training about the proofs of the resurrection and the kingdom. You see, he's making very clear to the apostles that he is risen. And I know that sounds a bit strange to say that, right? Because Jesus has been risen in a bodily form. He's standing before them. And why does he go through such an effort to ensure that his apostles truly know, they truly believe that he is risen and standing before them in a bodily manner? Why does he tell Thomas to put your hands in these holes on my hands, right? To know that I am the redeemed, resurrected Christ. Well, he recognizes... He knows, because he's God of the universe, that the apostles are going to face such difficulty and persecution that they needed to be rock solid in their confidence that Jesus has been resurrected. We know as we look at scripture that the apostles, and we believe all of them, just as we look at historical fact, died as a martyr. Every one of them were murdered for their faith. Every single one of them. And we recognize as we look back at the historical record, as we look at what's coming in the scriptures, we recognize that they needed to be assured that Jesus was who he says he was. That he was resurrected, that it was a bodily resurrection, that this wasn't hallucination, this wasn't some myth come to life. No, this was God himself dwelling among his people, living and breathing. Now he also teaches them about the kingdom of God. He's, he's saying, okay, look, I am here in a bodily way. Let's discuss the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom of God, right? We see that referenced throughout the scriptures. What does that actually mean? The kingdom, anytime we see that, is just simply addressing God's rule and reign over his creation. 
It's just addressing God's rule and reign over his creation. You see, it's the main subject of all of Jesus' teaching in the Bible. That if you look at anything else, whatever Jesus taught about, this is what he taught about the most, the kingdom. And as we study the book of Acts, we're going to see that's a central concern of the book of Acts. Because the, how do you enter the kingdom? It's by responding to the good news of a resurrected Savior. It's by placing your faith in this Savior named Jesus Christ that you enter into the kingdom. And as you look at the book of Acts, anytime you see the word gospel appear in there, we're really talking about the kingdom. Because again, the keys to the kingdom is that you've received the gospel that has been given to you. This free gift of grace that has been handed out by Jesus. Now as we look at these verses, you can see that there's a significant emphasis on teaching, right? That as we look at this, there's a lot that Jesus is talking about and doing. And over these last 40 days, that he's been with the disciples and he's taught them. He's taught them about the scriptures. He's ensured that their very ministries is rooted in the word of God. I think this tells us something that we need to be aware of in our own lives and in our own faith here. You see, in the book of Acts, we're getting to the story of Pentecost where the Spirit of God comes upon His people and we see that it comes down like tongues of fire to rest upon people. And we see a pretty miraculous moment over in Acts 2 that I won't steal the thunder from a later chapter, but we see something pretty significant happen, right? And I believe that we as believers, too often, we pray for power like we see in Acts 2. Far too often, our prayer is that we pray, God, you would move like the book of Acts. We want the Holy Spirit to move in a clear and tangible way for the world to see. We want the fire to come. We want the world to see a clear sign of the goodness of God. And so as we pray, we pray for that. And I think we're wrong to do so. Not because praying for revival or awakening or for this power from the Spirit to come is wrong. But we're praying for something we haven't prepared for. You see, we're praying for fire, yet we haven't put out any fuel for the fire. You see, the fuel is truth. It's the scriptures. Just as if you're going to begin a fire in a fire pit in your backyard, you can't start a fire if you don't have some firewood out there, right? You will not begin a fire without fuel. We want to see Pentecost occur in our day, but a fire cannot begin where there is no fuel. You see, mission is not fueled by the Spirit, but is fueled by the Word. The Spirit will ignite it, but it doesn't do so alone. And so I would ask you today, dear brother and sister in Christ, what does your firewood pile look like? Are you in the Word? Are you saturating yourself with the Scriptures and building that wood pile up so that the Spirit of God can set it ablaze and send you out as a missionary, boldly, courageously proclaiming the good news of the resurrected Savior? Or are you hoping that a little bit of drier Lent that you've gathered together from Sundays is enough to set you ablaze? You see, if you're struggling with the mission of God, if you're struggling with proclaiming the gospel, if you're struggling with doubts and fears, if you're just struggling to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps the problem is not with the Spirit or with God. Perhaps the problem is that we've not been chopping the wood of the Scriptures. 
Perhaps the problem is that we have not prepared a woodpile for the Spirit to ignite so that we might be set ablaze for the Lord Almighty. You see, the Spirit is ablaze and is ready to ignite you. It simply needs the fuel of the Scriptures in your heart and mind to set you on fire for the Lord and for the mission. And so I'd ask you, if you're saying, I'm struggling with the mission, I'm struggling with anything in the Christian life, where's your fuel? Where is your fuel? Are you hoping that the little bit you gather from Sundays is sufficient? Or are you working each and every day to build up another pile of wood so that the Lord may set you ablaze? You see, transformation begins with the Word. Transformation begins with the Word. And I will assure you, until the day that I die, I will assure you with this statement, that a church will only go as far as its love of the Scriptures will take it. A people of God will only go as far as their love of the Scriptures will take them. And so I simply ask you, are you in love with the God of the Bible that you know and you feed from regularly? Or are you in love with this idea of a God that you haven't embraced intimately in years? You see, indeed, if transformation begins with the Word, if you're not being transformed, you're not in the Word. And so I would submit to you today, if there's anything else you take from this sermon, and I hope there is more meat here for you to devour, what I hope you take away is that you take those Scripture journals that we buy every time we have a sermon series and wreck that book. I hope that your Bible looks like this raggedy old Bible that I have that's fallen apart and held together by glue in the binder. I hope and pray your Bible looks like it got ran over and chewed up by a dog because that means you are eating the Word. See, that's why we have this allusion here to John the Baptist's words. He points back and says, Do you remember what John the Baptist said? He said that I baptize you with water, but there comes one who is greater than I who will baptize you with fire. Dr. Max Turner suggests that this is to display this idea that the stronger one to come, that spirit that is to come, would cleanse Israel and he would be able to cleanse Israel because God would endow him with the spirit and power to accomplish that promised restoration. What he is pointing out to the apostles, he's saying the Spirit is going to come and you will now have power for the mission. That you will now be able to proclaim this gospel of a resurrected Christ, that repentance is at hand and all you must do is repent and believe and receive forgiveness. And that now as you proclaim those words, the Spirit will be at work in the hearts and minds of the listeners. People will now repent and believe. We see later on in Acts chapter 2 that when, they, when Peter proclaims this message of repentance, the people say, what must I do? And he says, repent and believe. And 3,000 people repent of their sin that day. He is saying, wait for this promised spirit, this promised power. Yet even as he said these words, he's been spending the past 40 days teaching them and discipling them and showing them they've got a crash course in what it means to be an apostle, to be a disciple of Christ. 
And they still don't understand everything that Jesus has told them. You see, in verse 6, they ask about this coming restoration of Jesus. They're repeating this common understanding that said the restoration of Israel's political fortune is going to be marked by revived activity from God's Spirit. They're saying, as Jesus is talking about the kingdom and the coming spirit, they're saying, hey, this must mean that the nation of Israel is now going to be back on top. Now things are going to be the way it's supposed to be. We'll have a king and his name is Jesus. The Roman authorities will be cast out. The world will look upon us and say, this is where the blessing of God dwells. And yet, despite the fact that they've walked with Jesus for three years, They've had this 40-day crash course. They miss the point of what Jesus is saying. They completely miss the point of what Jesus is saying. See, in verse 7, Jesus has to turn them away from Israel and then point them to something greater. Specifically, he calls them to the world in verse 8. Now, he's not rejecting the restoration of Israel John Polhill writes that he's simply saying the Lord's return doesn't revolve around speculation like this, but it revolves around God's purposes. Those purposes embrace the salvation of the world, not just of one nation. You see, he's calling them to remember that there are more people than just here in Israel that God loves and cares for. There are more people that are waiting to experience the redemption of Jesus Christ. If only someone would proclaim it to them. And he's saying that your journey begins in Jerusalem, but it does not end here in Jerusalem. Now verse 8 shows us that this salvation has come to the entire world. It's not just here for this single solitary nation. Now as we see verse 8, we've got to recognize what is Jesus promising? What is it that he's promising to his people? He's saying that power and witness. He's promising power and witness will come upon you. You will have power and you will be my witness. Now what does this mean, right? We're going to get nerdy and we're going to get into the Greek here. So bear with me, but this is important. When he talks about power, he's using the word dynamis. And what he's saying is this same word is used in the... The Gospels to refer to Jesus' miracles. He's saying the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is going to live in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you and I as followers of Christ. That word power means power from on high. So what he has promised in his people, the things that you have seen done here... The things such as resurrection from the grave, the the miracles I perform, that same power will rest in you. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not retaining anything. The power that I have is now yours as well. Now he also says, you will be my witnesses. Witnesses. See, this word is martus. This is where we get the word martyr from. It's a legal term, really, and it's rooted in this idea of testimony, of bearing witness of someone or something. What he is telling the disciples, what he's telling the apostles, is that you are going to go forth and you're going to bear witness to the resurrected Savior. You're going to bear witness to the Christ who has come. 
You're going to bear witness to the fact that reconciliation is possible, but only through this resurrected Savior. See, they're going to go forth and be witnesses. Dr. Ellie Keck gives this observation on how closely power and witnessing are tied together here. You see, he says that the less Jesus is the core of witness, the less power we have. I want to say that again because I hope you hear that. The less Jesus is the core of witness, the less power we have. You see, what we should understand as we look at this passage is that Jesus has promised that power will come and that power is directly tied to our witnessing. And our witnessing must be rooted at its very core to Jesus and Jesus alone. If there's anything about our witness and our proclamation of the gospel that's about us, I made this decision, I came to faith, I walked the aisle, I did this, then we are lessening the power of the gospel. We're lessening the power that God has promised to bring to his people to change hearts and minds, to redeem people. You see, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary for our Savior to die for us. And so you and I have done nothing in this process but live as guilty, condemned people who are in desperate need of a Savior. And God, in His goodness and grace, sends Jesus so that He might bring us, sinful people, into His family. Not as servants, not as someone who is lesser, but as co-heirs with Christ. That He looks upon us with the same measure of love and affection that He looks upon Christ. Is that not astounding? That he would bring sinful people like you and I. If we could recount the sins that we've committed, I mean, it would be miles long. And he looks upon us, redeemed people, in the same way, with the same love and affection that he looks upon Jesus. That is the very core of our message. That our witness is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That he has paid the debt that we have earned. He has paid the debt that we could not pay off. He has paid the debt so that we might have life eternal. That this is the very core of our message. This is the very core of the mission. Now as we look at these verses, he said that I will give you power and you will be my witnesses. And he continues telling that there's going to be some other stuff you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses, but where? Now, as we look at this, he says that the scope of the mission is going to involve the entire world. That this story led Jesus to Jerusalem, but the church does not stop here. The story of the church leads them away from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. We are here today because men and women who are faithful Christians were faithful to proclaim the good news where they lived, worked, and played around the world. That if we could trace our family history, so to speak, within the local church back, somewhere along the line, we would find that there is a follower of Christ from Jerusalem whom we are descended from as a spiritual father or mother. That's not to say that we are trying to trace back these things because that gives us rooting and meaning. But what it does show us is that because a group of men and women were faithful to the mission, we are here 
to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus in North Charleston. Now, the gospel is to go forth and to change lives around the world. And we recognize that that's a, a daunting task. That today, there are 7,500 people groups representing 3.28 billion people around the world who are unreached. That's 41% of the world. Now, what does this unreached mean? That means that less than 2% of these population groups, of these people groups, believe in Jesus. That means that there is no active church planting going on in these areas. That means that we believe that in many of these people groups, there's not a single person who knows of the gospel of Jesus. There's not a single person in some of these groups that would know of the gospel of Jesus. You see, the, the reality is that we're deeply concerned about lostness within our community. We are well aware of that. Yet, we have to keep our eye on the state of the world and recognize that though lostness is prevalent here, that today millions of people will live their lives around the world with no access and no hope of reconciliation with Christ. That there's no one among them to even proclaim the good news of a resurrected Savior who brings forgiveness if you would repent. You see, this, this is why the mission of God required the church. This is why God began the church. He began the church so that people would proclaim the good news wherever other people would live. You see, as John Piper says, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because there are places in our community, in our state, in our country, and around the world where people are not worshiping Jesus. And mission exists so that we could see these lives transformed by the good news of a resurrected Savior who sits on high and is offering forgiveness to his people. There are too many people around the world, including in our community, who are in desperate need of a Savior. And so I would simply ask, as you're wrestling with the, the realities of this text, I would simply ask for you, if you've been transformed and you are feeding yourself on the Word, are you pursuing the mission? Are you pursuing the mission? Because let me be very clear as we look at the Scriptures. In the book of Acts, as we look throughout Scriptures, the most important thing to the church is the mission. It's not what program we have. It's not what song we sing. It's not how long the sermon is. It is the mission. And the only reason that we should exist as a local church is that we exist to see every life transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so I simply ask you, if you're here as a transformed believer, as a follower of God, are you committed to the mission? Are you committed to being a faithful missionary where you live, work, and play so that people might be transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ? Now, as we think on that, as we meditate on that truth, we recognize that's a big task. 
That even if indeed 41% of the world is unreached, even in our own community that we recognize that 72% don't believe in Jesus, those are big numbers. Those are big things to comprehend and to think, how could we as a small church reach these people? How could we even see fruit from these efforts? Well, I believe that the answer to that is found in the following verses. Because as we look at Jesus' concluding statement here to his disciples, we see that transformation comes with assurance. Transformation comes with assurance. Look with me at verse 9. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see, transformation comes with assurance. Luke ends this section talking about the ascension of Jesus and we see that as the scriptures say that he was raised into the sky before the disciples. As we all might do, they're staring into the sky and maybe they're a bit shocked and concerned. That certainly if we're here and if Jesus were walking among us and if he were to raise up into the sky, we might stand around for a little while just looking. We might stand around thinking he's just told us to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel and then he left. This is like that boss who tells you, you can't leave till the job is done, and then they walk out the door. And you're thinking, how are we going to do this? Perhaps you can feel the panic setting in. Yet we see these angels appear here. And they offer what I think is a gentle rebuke to the disciples as they're standing in the middle of this field outside Jerusalem. And they offer this rebuke, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven they're reminding them that you're not supposed to stand here to continue to look into the heavens now why why do they receive this rebuke why are they getting this reminder what we remember as we look at scriptures right as we look throughout the scriptures God sends his angels to be messengers for him that's always how they appear they're bringing a message from the Lord that's what they're doing and as we recognize, the disciples were probably in distress because we're people and we would have been panicking as well, right? We would have been worried, why is he gone? What's going to happen? I know he said the helper's going to come, but does that mean he's coming back? What is it we're supposed to do here? If you remember, I mean, the reality is that the last time Jesus disappeared, when he was crucified, dead and buried, things didn't go very well for the disciples, they were worried about things legitimately because they said the last time he was gone, things didn't turn out so well for us. Yet, I think this rebuke, this gentle rebuke from the angels is a reminder, is a message from God to the disciples, to the apostles, to us. You see, it's an assurance that Jesus is still with them. Yes, he has been taken from them. He has raised up on high. But He's not gone. He is simply sitting on the throne, ruling over all creation. He's still their leader, 
As we look at Matthew 20, uh, 28, verse 20, it tells us at the very end of it, that behold, I will be with you always until what? Until the end of the age. He's providing assurance that I'm going to be with you. And what he's telling them is that I may not physically be with you, but I will be with you. Now see, the apostles are frozen here. They're, they're locked in place and they're concerned because in some sense they've lost Jesus. Yet, they have now been assured that Jesus is still the same God who walked among them, but now he is seated on the throne. You see, what I think this tells us is that this ascension of Jesus, it demands not that we stand still and look on in awe or fear or panic or whatever you may be feeling, but rather the ascension demands that we get moving. The ascension demands that we go forth to proclaim the good news of a resurrected Savior who's sitting on high. Because just as the angels here proclaim that this Jesus who was taken up into heaven, he will come back in the same way, that there is a second coming that will occur. That regardless of your position on the end times, what we know in Scripture from the book of Revelations is that Jesus is returning. And that when he comes back, it is not coming back as a meek and mild Savior, but it is coming back to end sin and death. He's coming to kill Satan to end his rule and reign, and to sit victoriously in the new heavens and the new earth with his people that he's gathered together. And so the angels are offering that assurance that Jesus is on the throne, that he's going to rest upon the throne. And remember, he's returning one day, that this story is not ending with Satan still a victor, but it ends with Christ on the throne yet again in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, it's a reminder that we are to go forth, that we're to get moving for the mission, that we have this assurance that Jesus is still on the throne so we can be assured that the mission can be accomplished. Let me be very clear that I don't know practically how we as a church of 50, 60 people reach an entire community in North Charleston. But my job is to not figure that out. My job is to be faithful and God will provide the fruitfulness. Your job is to be faithful, to proclaim the good news of a resurrected Savior. And God will provide the fruitfulness. Your job is to proclaim the gospel so that God might reap a harvest in his kingdom. And we have the assurance that he still sits on the throne. That he's still working in his world and that he still cares about his church. You see, transformation comes with assurance. And that assurance is rooted in the gospel. That assurance is rooted in the gospel of Jesus, that we have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that we now have life because Jesus took the death that we deserved. And if you're here and you're doubting, you're wrestling with these things, you're concerned about this assurance, well, the solution to that is the gospel. That whether you're here and you would say you're a believer, maybe you're here and you say that I don't believe in these things, maybe you're here and you're saying, I don't even know what I believe. The answers to your doubts, your fears, and concerns are all rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And what that means is that we would simply come forth as humble, broken people looking to a holy, perfect God, 
confess our sins, repent of them, turn away, put them aside, and cry out to God for forgiveness. That God will take our sins and wipe them away, push them as far as the east is from the west. And that we will be united with Christ here on this earth with the assurance that he sits on the throne and still cares for his people. And so today, if you're here and you're wrestling with fears, doubts, concerns, whatever it may be, the solution to those is the assurance that Christ offers through the gospel. And here in the next few minutes, you'll have opportunity to cry out to God and simply ask him for his grace and mercy. You see, we'll go into a time of prayer and I'll be silent for a few minutes so that you can go before the Lord yourself. You can cry out to God on your own and ask him to move in your life. After a few moments, I will then pray and speak aloud, praying for God to bless us. And after that, our worship team will lead us in one final song where we can celebrate the good news of a resurrected Savior who sits on high, ruling and reigning over his people and his kingdom. And so if you would, would you just take a moment and let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come to you seeking assurance today that no matter where any of us are in our spiritual journey, one thing that I am confident that we always need is assurance of a Father who loves us and cares for us. The assurance of a Father who is concerned about his people. The assurance of a Father who has never abandoned us, who has never let us walk alone. And Father, today I pray that we would feel the weight of that assurance. That we would recognize that you are a holy God. Who despite anything that we as sinful people have done, you have chosen to love us. That you have chosen to care for us. That you have chosen to, even to the point of death, bring us into your family. And so, Father, we are grateful for that grace. We're grateful for that love that defies understanding. And, Lord, we pray that today that we would rest in that love, that we could be assured of your love and compassion for us, that we would be comforted by the truth that you are a holy God who calls to a holy people, and that we are made to be holy people only by the man on the cross, Jesus Christ. So Father, today, wherever we are in our journeys, as we're following you, as we're figuring out, do we even believe in you? Whatever it may be, Lord. I pray that today we would look to you and ask for forgiveness. 
that we would repent of our sins, that we would acknowledge we've sinned, we would cry out to you that we need forgiveness, that we have been corrupted by our own desires. And that we need you to forgive us and to make us holy. Lord, we are thankful for the finished work of Jesus. We're thankful for the resurrected Savior that reigns on high and is even now caring for His people. Father, we pray that today, as we finish this time of worship, that we would rejoice in Your goodness, that we would celebrate all that You've done for us, and that we would proclaim of a risen Savior who loves His people and walks with us daily. Father, we are thankful for your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.